Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi everyone, welcome back to TVP. This episode is part of our turnaround mini-series. This week, we're pleased to have guest Andrew Schimmel on the pod. Andrew is the co-founder and director of Icevogel Group, a private equity firm that specializes in companies providing software, business services, industrial applications, and tech-enabled products throughout Europe. Notably, Icevogel is not a company that seeks to invest in turnaround situations, but in one of the case of their investments, due to a multitude of factors, they found themselves working with a company that had to apply for bankruptcy protection. In this episode, Juan and Andrew chat about accounting for uncertainty during modeling through scenario analysis, two variables which are difficult to appreciate as an investor from the outside, time and margin for error, communication with all stakeholders, including employees, and finally, human capital as the most important variable in any turnaround. On a final note, this episode was recorded in the summer of 2022, which you might note from some of the weather chat, but we delayed release in deference to some negotiations with the case study stakeholders. Enjoy. Andrew Schremel, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? It's very well, Juan. Thank you for having me. So we are recording this on a day that it's extremely, extremely hot in London. Where about are you in the UK today? Yeah, today I'm actually in central London in, uh, in obviously the boiling heat. So we're expected to sort of have record highs today. Just uh, I think everybody would be... You know, if you look back five years ago, probably nobody thought the UK would reach sort of 39 degrees today. That's true. But people go, people are complaining about the weather all the time in the UK. So I guess, I guess, in my opinion, we should just embrace it. Embrace this uh, very few days of hot weather. I, I would completely agree with you um, in the sense of, you know, where, where I grew up, it always gets very warm. But I think, you know, I do think we have to be conscious of the fact that the world is getting warmer. Um, and, and when you look at, you know, the number of folks in the market today talking about the climate change and, and this being the next sort of cycle of opportunities to make, you know, significant returns, you know, the, the climate change phenomenon or investment market, in a sense, you want to term it that way, is definitely going to be real. Uh, there, will, there will be an opportunity, an opportunity, a number of opportunities arise out of this. So it's interesting, you just mentioned where I grew up. So can you... Give our listeners a brief introduction on who you are and what has been your journey. Sure. So, Andrew Schemmel, as, as you mentioned before, I grew up in the U.S., started my investment career in San Francisco, uh, working with a mid-market private equity fund there. And at the time, that was sort of a, a, a firm that was on Fund One, uh, and the firm was called Alpine Investors. And 
uh, they were putting in the foundation of you know what what today is is a very much a leading private equity fund in the U.S. Um, but at the time there, it was very small. And, you know, as anybody will know, early in your career, if you start small, it's very hard to go big. Um, if you start big, it's much easier to go small. Um, <laughs> so after, after a bit of time there, I transitioned and spent some time with GE Capital working between London and New York. And then got tired of, you know, I guess in a sense, the bureaucratic structure of a large corporate or conglomerate and wanted something a bit more entrepreneurial. And I left GE Capital after two years and moved to Fortress Investment Group in New York, where I spent the better part of five years uh, working on the private equity side of the business within the context of, uh, of sort of the financial services, investing, senior care, and transportation. And after about five years of New York, living in New York, you know, very, very difficult period in terms of the great financial crisis. Uh, so this was the time period of 2012 to 2008. 2008 to 2012, so very difficult, challenging period from an investment perspective. I was looking to do what, what steps to take next, and that's when I elected to do my MBA at London Business School. And I looked at, you know, regarding the MBA, I looked at a number of different opportunities there, and I thought, you know, anything in the U.S., whether that be Wharton, Harvard, Chicago, are all basically pipelines back to New York. Uh, so I wanted to do something a bit more international, diverse, a you know, little bit more uh, differentiated in a sense, uh, and LBS fit the bill as it's a very international sort of school. Uh, and, and while at LBS, focused on private equity, and then very soon after LBS, I, I, uh, during my time at LBS, I met my business partner, Christoph Junger Zinkler, and we started ISO in 2015. I, I'm a little bit ignorant about this. I would have thought that the Fortress Group was a big private equity house, but you just mentioned that you were kind of looking to transition to a smaller kind of shop. Yeah, I think, you know, after, after, Fortress was at the time, it was a very much a leading private equity fund uh, across the US. And I, I think, you know, referencing back to when I started very, you know, in my early careers working at Alpine, I always wanted to go back to that type of investment structure where it's a bit more entrepreneurial and smaller, which, which you, you can provide a little bit more uh, value out if you interpret it that way. I think, you know, at the, at the level which, which the market where Fortress was operating, which is a very large capped sort of private equity model, um, it's much more financial engineering led as opposed to, you know, deep value add, govern, adding, you know, governance into businesses uh, and or operational um, best practices. You know, most of these businesses already had professionalized management teams in them. And therefore it was, I guess, you know, the investment thesis was very different. And I think, you know, when you're talking about the lower mid market, most of these businesses are, you know, much more founder owned, family owned. And at Icefogel, we only look at primary transactions. Therefore, you know, they've never had an investor, a professional investor in the business in their cash structure before. So a lot of them is taking them, taking the business, a lot of the investment thesis is taking the business through that journey of, you know, instituting best practices, uh, you know, building out a governance structure, financial reporting, but also looking at, you know, how do you, you know, really leverage what the business has uh, through inorganic growth uh, and or international expansion. So you just uh, mentioned Ice Vogel Group. What sort of private equity do you guys do? So, yeah, I mean, great question. So Ice Vogel is a growth focused investor. Um, so we look at, you know, the lower end of the market. So, you know, one through, you know, 15 million of EBITDA really probably more focused towards the latter part of that or the, the, the earlier part of that. 
and and we look at uh, you know opportunities that really you know we look at sort of what I would term as software B two B B two C business services and or industrial or brand enabled solutions all sort of within the overarching theme of the silverization of Western Europe in the sense that Western European economies are aging and that will impact the markets in a multitude of different ways, either from consumer discretionary spending through to, um, you know, how Western Europe needs to adopt more technology, whether that be robotics and or software to remain competitive on a global level. And do you guys have the traditional private equity structure where you are looking to raise a fund and exit within X amount of time, or you have a little bit more of permanent capital and a longer time horizon? So we have a we have a, we're definitely a longer dated investor. We are not in a position where we look to you know cycle through investments in three to four years, which I think has become sort of the new norm or standard within the private equity market. But I think the way we think about it is that we want to invest across multiple growth cycles, and a growth cycle being three to four years. So our investments will typically be two to three growth cycles, so somewhere in the range of six to twelve years. But the you know our goal is to take businesses through that journey. Uh, where, where you implement best practices into a business and or add resources from a management level and then think about how you continue to build on that and develop that business. Uh, again, you know, thinking about new product development, geographic expansion uh, and or you know, additional acquisitions as well. How different is it to do private equity in a market like the US, which is very deep, very big, to different markets within Western Europe, in different countries, with different cultures, which I guess those markets are big, but they are not as deep as they are in the U.S. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think that the U.S. is, is obviously a much larger market um, in, in terms of scale and size and also you know, real, you know, capital available in the market. But there's some structural differences in the market That, that actually make the U, some of the European markets just as competitive. Um, so in, in the US, you, you don't have certain public disclosures uh, regarding information of private companies that you do in, in the U European markets. So in the UK specifically, you have public disclosures that make relatively a lot of information on public private companies available to anybody through a company's house, where in the US, that, that information is actually not available. So if you're investing in the lower mid market of the U.S., it's more challenging to find information on companies that is readily available in the U.K. and various different databases versus the U.S. where that information is much more opaque. So you have to do a lot more work regarding the information of the markets themselves and try to understand the market and try to understand targets within the market and build that industry knowledge. This is a podcast about decision making under uncertainty. And we decided to do a mini-series on corporate turnarounds. The reason behind that is we are value investors, and as investors, we find ourselves in many situations where we are investing in a company that it's struggling, either because it's offer of an accident of its own making or because it's operating in an environment where it's facing very different challenges. And there's a lot of decision-making in a very uncertain environment. So we wanted to understand or have discussions around what it looks like to be invested in a business that is struggling and what's the process and the mindset on a day-to-day -day basis 
to make decisions that will help that business turn around. And so you've mentioned in the past through conversations that we've had before that Icebogel is not a product equity that specializes in turnarounds, but we're going to discuss a situation in which you guys invested in a company that looked very promising and that company faced a lot of challenges throughout the last five years. And so we're going to walk through that journey if that's possible. And so I wanted to ask you, could you, I know that you cannot name the name of the company or the country in Europe where it operates because it's an ongoing situation, but could you give us a little bit of context and background? What was the investment thesis? What does the company do? And what happened over the course of the last five years? Yeah, not a problem, Juan. I think, you know, and I think, you know, to come to your point, I think that, you know, we are not a turnaround focused investment firm, but I, I think it's important that, to highlight that, you know, obviously markets turn and markets have a, markets are impacted by several different factors or variables. And, you know, what a successful investor will be able to do is, is, is navigate those challenges and ultimately, you know, find us, find a way through that. And I think, you know, a lot of these, some, some challenges will be, some challenges will be internal within the business and some challenges will be driven by external factors. And I think when you look at this particular investment, obviously, you know, the, we've been hit with both of those. And to provide context with that, you know, we went through the change management process of this particular business. So it was an owner managed business and we went through the process of bringing in a new CEO into the business. And this was in 2018. And within, you know, six months, that individual was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. Um, and, and he asked to be to sort of be released of his duties um, as he was going on undergoing chemotherapy and radiation uh, which is understandable but it, you know from an investment perspective it's very very challenging as that individual had already begun the process of change management and hiring in some in some key individuals into the business to begin adding depth to the management team so we had to obviously in a position where we're going on the down on a path of you know, bringing in management into a change management, bringing in, in transitioning from an owner managed business into a sort of a more professional management structure, and obviously being hit with that kind of a you know, I guess in a sense of black swan event, if you want to term it that way, was very very challenging. So we had to go back to the market again and look to bring in a, a new a new CEO into the business, which we did in sort of you know over the course of about a four month period. Uh, obviously, bringing in management into a business doesn't happen overnight; it takes time. Mm. Um, but also, you know, during that time period, obviously the business continues to, to operate. So it's a matter of how do you continue operations of the business while, you know, very clearly the business is going through, you know, change uh, in the sense that you're, you're undergoing a change management process, which is also not easy, but then also to layer on the fact that you, you then have to go through another change management process during the same period is very difficult. But nonetheless, we hired the new CEO into the business, I think, in, in October 2019, uh, I want to say. And that individual, you know, was, you know, you know, as any CEO wants to do, wants to make changes within the management structure, et cetera, et cetera. So the first couple of months of the business, he started making those changes. But then, you know, February 2020, COVID hit. So you're in a situation where you have already one black swan and then you're facing the second black swan in a matter of months, which makes the investment very challenging as it was already going through a significant amount of change. What is it that the company does? So the business produces uh, bespoke machinery. Uh, so it is a project-based business produ producing bespoke machinery 
primarily into, well, automation, if you want to term it that way, uh, automated machinery. Uh, so any, anything regarding the application of robotics uh, and or handling of uh, industrial goods. Okay. And so February 2020, COVID hits, and then how does COVID impact this specific company? Yeah, COVID was very challenging initially. Um, one, because you know a lot of the, the, the European countries actually closed their borders. So if you're supplying services and delivering projects across, across European borders, in many situations, that became incredibly challenging because they didn't help allow, the, you know, allow companies or workers to cross borders, geographically speaking. As well as the business itself, you know, you was challenged with how to get goods across borders. Um, how do you, you know, if you're sourcing goods from Asia, specifically electronic goods, um, that, that market, that became very challenging as well, because, you know, obviously the global supply chains became very disruptive. So you had another layer on top of that in the, in the sense that the global supply chain, there was significant disruption within the global supply chain. Your employees were not able to cross borders to complete installation of certain projects. You yourself are fighting COVID internally within your own employee base as everybody, you know, globally speaking, was, was doing so. But yet you're still going through this turnaround phase, if you want to term it that way, where you're going through that change management phase and implementing, you know, a new management team into the business. And I'll bite during this entire process, you know, you're undergoing, uh, the, you know, we initially, you know, completed the transaction using some financial engineering or financial leverage from, you know, banks. Uh, so you're also, you know, obviously going through that process of, of negotiating with banks um, and trying to negotiate with banks to get uh, a, a resolution to move forward in terms of the actual investment structure, um, which obviously, you know, is a very challenging period for everybody. And I think the more challenging period is that once you, once you thought you got through the first wave of COVID, you know, and you developed a plan going forward, obviously everybody was impacted by the second and third wave of COVID. And every time you had to go through that, when you're, you're already faced with a challenging situation day one, entering the COVID period, you know, it became increasingly more challenging through that process uh, because the, you know, the external factors continue to shift and change. And at that point in time, you know, you're, you, obviously conversations with external factors as in external stakeholders being the banks became very challenging. So I guess when, when did this specific investment case became uh, distressed? Was it in the management transition during the, let's call it the first phase, you guys do the investment in 2018, you need to change management then the new CEO gets sick, then you need to find a new management, new management comes in place, then COVID hits. No, I mean, I think, you know, as you know, anybody in sort of this situation will tell you that there's different levels of stress and distress. Yeah. And when you're going through that turnaround process, the, the, you know, the business will undergo several different types of changes in a way, right? And I think, you know, when you're going through that process, you know, certainly the first sort of phase of that where you're going internal change management, et cetera, et cetera, was I wouldn't call it distress. That's a, you know, an element of, you know, investment in a way. You have to change management and it happens. I think when you're talking about external factors and the market significantly changing, you know, that can bring around sort of significant distress. Um, and I think COVID really created a situation with this, with this particular business where it became distressed. And from that perspective, you know, the, and everybody would tell you that the, the, you know, the market created a lot of stress within the market uh, in multiple different industries. 
with this particular business, with where it was in its own life cycle and the industry and the business business model that the business has, that led it to become sort of more distressed. Uh, and that, so you're dealing with COVID, or the business is dealing with COVID. It has a different, I guess, it gets into a place where relationship with different stakeholders becomes a little bit more strained. And then Russia invades the Ukraine. And that creates another layer for the business. Is that correct? Yeah. So I think the Russian invasion into Ukraine was certainly sort of the, the third Black Swan event um, for this particular business. Um, and, and the reason being is because, you know, the leading raw material for this business is relatively steel. I mean, it's fabricated, but it's steel. And Russia and Ukraine are the largest steel producers uh, into the European economies. But, but also our customers, one of their largest raw material products is, is timber. And that's also sort of the largest suppliers of timber into the European economies are also Russia and the Ukraine. So you had another double layer effect in, in, with this particular business as the market effectively you know, faced another black swan event. And this business, again, was faced into, put into a situation where it, you know, it, was, it, it, be, it faced significant, more, significant challenges yet again. In terms of that way. Okay. Did I think that you've mentioned in the past that this company was very close or about to file for bankruptcy? Is that correct? Mm, yes. Did um, file. I mean, we, we underwent a the equivalent of a chapter 11 bankruptcy. Okay. So it, it happened and that creates its own process of dealing with the different stakeholders to try to get the business out of it. But actually, at some point, did you guys? thought that you would have to close the business and liquidate the business or or that was never part of the yeah i mean i think well you know again we're not a turnaround investor right and i think when you when you enter into these situations certainly you have to approach everything with a you know i guess in a sense a, a fresh outlook um you know as, as any investor will tell you you know the number one one of the number one rules of investing is not to put good capital after bad and so you certainly have to sort of approach it and say you know does the does the investment still have merit and certainly, you know, the one overarching theme of that is, is the market still viable is, you know, because obviously, you know, a lot of these things that we're talking about are different shifts in the market. And the question is, is, do, you know, have the underlying drivers in the market shifted or are those still intact, therefore allowing the business to recover? And, and, and we made the determination that, you know, the market was still, you know, even though it, it has had undergone significant shifts because of external factors, the market was still attractive in the sense that, you know, Western European economies still need automation. We still are, as a society, are not as highly automated as other geographies or other countries, specifically being Japan um, So there's and or South Korea. So there's a lot of more automation that the European economy will have to do in the coming years. And therefore, we thought, you know, look, there's still merit in this. I'll bite, you know, we, we've, had, we've had some external market shocks. But, you know, with the right management team in place, the business, you know, has a future. That's really interesting. When, when you're thinking about investing into any company, there's always a lot of modeling and forecasting. People also tend to think about scenarios and usually do the typical base case, bull case, and bear case. How do you think about the process of forecasting? And within that process, do you guys do scenario analysis? And if you do... How do you incorporate the various qualitative factors within the context of modeling and forecasting? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, as a, as a, a private equity focused investor, certainly we do a significant amount of modeling. 
and forecasting. And to your point, we do think about, you know, base case, downside case, upside case, et cetera. But, you know, we, we always also, you know, think about it within the context of well, what a model actually is. You know, a model is highly precise, is significantly precise, but highly inaccurate in the sense that, you know, it will determine you a number, but there's one thing guaranteed is that that number is actually not going to be how it's going to play out. And therefore, so you have to think about and understand, okay, look, what are the various different factors that come to play in this being, you know, one, one largest factor being the market, second one being management, third, you know, so I think there's, there's a multitude of different factors that you have to consider. And a lot of those are not quantitative, they're qualitative. And so, you know, the question becomes is saying that how do you, through that process, you know, really build your knowledge of the market? Uh, to ensure that you have a fundamental understanding and can further support your investment thesis. And I think that that, that context provides a lot more value add uh, in many ways than it does the actual numbers on, on, in the model itself or the forecast itself. The qualitative factors that, that provide the context actually are the factors that enable you to deliver the forecast and or to adjust or pivot during different market challenges. So the reason I'm asking is because many of the challenges that made the investment case go into a distress level and had to file for bankruptcy, such as a global pandemic, which the world had not seen in almost 100 years, and then a war uh, in Europe, which the world has not seen in almost 100 years as well, are things which are extremely difficult to anticipate and extremely difficult to model even under a sort of bird case scenario. So I was wondering, given this experience, in your opinion, how can anyone incorporate into their base case scenario the sort of unforeseen events that this specific investment has had to deal with over the last five years? Jeez, Juan, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, maybe the answer is no, no, no. Maybe, I think maybe the, you just can't. No, no, no. I think the reality is, but I think the market, the market's adjusting today. So I think if you think about, think back post sort of the GFC, you know, I think that you know, if you look at the market going into the great financial crisis, and I think that you know, the market was obviously topping out in a way and getting very frothy. So there was capital relatively readily available in multiple different corners of the market, if you want to term it that way. And I think, you know, we're entering a situation now where when you're looking at, you know, the VC market, you know, there's, there's significant sort of volatility within the VC market as, as valuations are coming down. And so I think people, you know, naturally speaking, are thinking more about risk today. You know, it's more of a, a risk off kind of market than a risk on kind of market. And therefore, I think valuations are naturally being challenged more today than they were a year ago. Um, as people are thinking more about, okay, look, there's several different sort of, we, you know, we, again, the market is sort of pricing in, if you want to term it that way, the, the various different black swan events that we've, we've seen occur over the last couple of years, where over the last, you know, relatively speaking, since, you know, World War II, we haven't had a, a, a war in Europe. So there's been geopolitical stability in, in the European continent for, you know, 70 years or more than that. So I think you're looking at a situation where, you know, there, there's been a certain amount of uncertainty that has occurred over the last three years that's, that's creating or driving investors to, to price in some of this risk that probably, historically speaking, they didn't really consider because the market was more stable. 
But I think the market is, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty in the market today that, you know, we, we as investors need to account for. Because it's, it's difficult. One of the things that we've explored in this podcast a lot is how to better um, think in terms of probabilities and how to adopt probabilistic thinking. And I was wondering if there was a way or if you believe that you could apply probabilistic thinking to do the different forecasting scenarios when you're thinking about a new investment. Is that something that you would consider to do or it's just in practice, it's just too difficult? I think in theory, it's a great exercise to go through in terms of sort of some sort of regression analysis, et cetera. Uh, I think, you know, the reality is that you will have one situation or one outcome that is, is highly unknown at the time when you make an investment. And the reality is, is that you know, there's too many factors that play a role over a period of three to 10 years that you could not deal with um, from, from that perspective. And because if you think about it, and it's a great example, right? If you think about it, if you were to invest in a business at the end of 2019, would you be, how would you think about a pandemic, a global pandemic occurring within two months? There's no way of modeling that. It's impossible. No. It's literally impossible. So, you know, and the question is, is today, when's the, next one, when's the next global pandemic going to be? You know, how do you factor that in? You know, from a modeling perspective, it's incredibly challenging. I think what investment firms are more, you know, focusing on today are, are markets that are more, uh, are less susceptible to shocks or external shocks. So you, you've also seen a lot of investors look at the healthcare market and say, oh, that's a very attractive market because it's less susceptible to these type of events. Um, so you've seen a lot of capital raise around the healthcare market uh, and or opportunities in the healthcare market because, again, it's less susceptible to you know, these external shocks and that demand is going to be there you know, no matter what. I think that that's a great point because just after uh, GFC, I remember the media throughout the first few years after after it happened, it was all about mortgage-backed securities and those kind of securities and signaling whether or not that sort of risk was building somewhere else in the system. But the probability that that is going to be the cause of the next crisis within the financial services service companies, it's very low because people are already aware of that risk and they have taken contingencies so that they can limit that risk. Again, uh, you are seeing on the media reports about like new pandemics. So the monkey pox thing that was reported before, but the probability of having a second pandemic within the next few years, as bad as COVID should be relatively low. And so the point being, whatever is going to hit us is something that we cannot anticipate, something that we cannot even think about. And that's, that's what makes it very challenging. Yeah, and, so, and also, you know, specifically how it impacts that, that business or that opportunity. That's incredibly challenging to understand because, you know, you know to your point, a monkeypox will impact, you know, one business in a certain market sector very different than one impacted a different one. And I think that that's, you know, almost the, the challenge. And I think when you think about, you know, the, the crisis in Ukraine, you know, when you're thinking about the UK environment or Western Europe, European markets, you know, the, the markets that were heavily impacted by COVID, being hospitality, leisure, et cetera, you know, I would argue that they're they're less susceptible to the, the conflict in Ukraine. Yeah. 
So you know, it, it also really depends upon how those those businesses or those markets are impacted by those external factors, and you know, it makes it that that just makes it very challenging from a from a model in sheer modeling perspective and thinking about how you you know understand what a downside case could look like, and assessing sort of any probability to that makes it very very challenging. There are two variables that are difficult to appreciate from the outside when you are invested dealing in a turnaround type situation: time and margin of error. Both tend to be connected. The latter comes from the fact that stakeholders tend to provide less slack and the company is more susceptible to external events outside both positive and negative. At each turn, it seems like the margin of error got shorter. Can you walk us through the decision-making process process at each turn for this company? So I guess starting with changing management after he got sick and think about how do you prioritize? And how do you deal with your different stakeholders, especially suppliers, banks, and employees? Yeah, I mean, this is a fantastic question, because this really gets the heart of sort of what makes businesses operate. And I think, you know, the, the most important element of a business, you know, bar none is, is, is its employees, because that's what obviously delivers whatever the business is doing, right, at the end of the day. And when you're talking about, you know, generating some sort of income and, and, and developing that into profitability, you know, the employees are driving that process. Um, so, so you know, you know, going through these these kind of challenging periods, you know, employee retention is very, very high on the list. Um, you need to make sure that you're focusing on getting, you know, in communicating a clear message to the employee base to ensure that there's understanding around what is being done and why it's being done. Therefore, you know, because because the one thing is in, in these kind of scenarios, what you cannot have is the uncertainty within the employee base creates a scenario where. There's a number of different rumors going around, et cetera, et cetera, which ultimately leads to a scenario where that also leaks into the external market. So I think, you know, most importantly is to make sure there's alignment within the management team and the employee base uh, regarding the the steps that are are being taken, why they're being taken, and what you expect to occur in the coming months as well. Um, Outside of that, I think, you know, certainly businesses that are dependent on an external supplier Supplier base is very important as well to make sure that there's there's continuity and continuation there. So you need to be communicating a, a consistent message with them, and, and to to you know and, and as well. I mean, banks certainly are important as well, but banks are in many ways they're a recipient of information, but they're also a provider of capital. So if the banks are there to help and assist you, which hopefully they are, you know, obviously you want to you know make sure that they're well informed throughout this process. Because they can also provide, you know, a lot of advantages to you if they're willing to continue to lend through this process or provide you some liquidity through the process. You know, depending on the certain amount of stress or distress within the process, that becomes an option or not an option. I guess I made the point about suppliers and the banks because, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, but when people feel that there is trouble, they are less willing to provide to give you slack, to give the whole ecosystem slack so that you can deal with the different uncertainty. So I guess paying back your suppliers, they might not be willing to provide you with credit and the time for you to pay back shortens and banks might actually, might be more willing to call on covenants if that's the case, or to just like you were saying before, not provide more capital because they would be thinking as well as an investor that they would be throwing bad money after bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, don't be wrong, you're 100% correct. 
Um, and I think I think the reality is that in many from, from many perspectives, the conversation is really dependent on sort of you know how quickly the business can recover, and it, you know how believable is that. And is this with the suppliers or with the uh, with the banks? That, that, that's with banks, you know, because at the end of the day, with banks, the the question is is you know they also an invested they're they're an invested stakeholder in the business. Yeah. So you know the question from them is they want to see a return on the capital they they've already invested. But yet, you know, to your point, they don't want to invest good capital after bad, but they also want to think about, you know, what is the probability of getting a return on the total investment? So, it, it, you know, they have to see how the, you know, what you've done as a manager or as a management team to correct the issue and, and what is the way forward? So what does the business plan look like going forward? Um, so you constantly have to sort of readjust the business plan uh, or develop a business plan. Um, I think suppliers are slightly different because they are, you know, their exposure to you as, as a client is probably is, is significantly less um, in many ways, but doesn't mean that you're less dependent on them in any ways, because, you know, in many, in many cases you are dependent on the suppliers. But to your point, you know, it's very hard for them to extend you credit or it can be difficult depending on how that relationship has developed through that sort of challenging period. I and guess... I yeah. They also have less visibility into what might be it's happening into the business. Significantly less visibility, right? So, you know, from a banking perspective, obviously, you know, it, it, you know, typically speaking in these kind of these kind of processes, you know, the bank that you get financing from also is sort of the banking institution you use on a day to day basis. So they have visibility of the movements in and out of the accounts as well. So from that perspective, you know, they have a lot of visibility regarding what are the movements uh, and quantity of movements in and out of the accounts on a daily basis and or weekly, monthly basis. Um, and that, that provides them a lot of comfort and or, and or concern, depending on the situation. How was the decision and how it was taken when you guys decided to file for bankruptcy? Yeah, in, our, in, our, in this particular situation, um, obviously, any anytime you go through that process, it's very, very challenging. I think in this particular situation, um, we, we were in a situation where going through, as we sort of discussed, you know, and entering into the, the COVID period, you know, the more, you know, the business was already going through change management. Um, so it was already going, going through significant changes, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, when you're talking about changing management, you know, that's something that, you know, is also communicated to customers, communicated to suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so, you know, they also see those changes and that obviously, to a certain extent, raises concern. And then when you go through the, the layering on, on top of that, you know, the first wave of COVID, obviously those concerns get, get significantly higher. In this particular situation, um, obviously going into the, the first wave of COVID, the business became stressed. And, 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 and you know, and, and the level of stress continues to sort of increase throughout that, that first wave of COVID. And, and the, our, our, our biggest problem was is that, you know, we developed a, a, a business plan but the business plan continued to change. So as the external environment continued to change because you went through the first wave of COVID, second wave of COVID, third wave of COVID, and, and every time you went, you know, within sort of the first sort of three months or, or first month, two months of that first wave of COVID, everybody thought, okay, look, the market is stabilizing. There's, there's you know, we'll return to some amount or, or of normalcy in the coming months. And we, have a, we had a brief window where we, we did, you know, have some normalcy in the market, but then everybody, you know, the second wave of COVID hit and that created a certain amount of uncertainty in the market. And if you're thinking about the situation that we are facing is, is that, you know, through those different 
uh, scenarios or, or waves of COVID, we were trying to have a conversation with the banks. And the problem is that the business plan continued to shift and change. And therefore it became very challenging. Those conversations became more challenging because you know, they, they become, you know, to back to your point around modeling and, and how do you model that and present you know, something that is the business case going forward. The problem is it just continued to change. And therefore, you know, you know, coming to your, your, your comment around, again, regarding the banks and regarding, you know, certainty or comfort around that, it, it was very challenging from, the, from their perspective. Um, so we were in a situation where, you know, the business needed liquidity. And, and the, the only way, you know, for us as investors to provide liquidity into the business was to take it through a quasi chapter 11 process where you can present new cash into the, into the business that stayed in the business and didn't get swept out. By the bank. Okay. I guess that should have strained the relationship with the banks. Obviously, yes. Um, the, 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 the relationship to the bank. I mean, the, I wouldn't say they were strained. I mean, obviously, they were very difficult. But if you, if you also think back to this period of time, you know, we, we would have not have been the only, bus, only business that you know, was confronted with these issues. Yeah. So, you know, the banks themselves were inundated with different businesses coming to them in the need of credit. Mm. So we were, we were one of many uh, to put it that, to put it, put it that way. So I think, you know, yes, you know, from our perspective, it was obviously a very critical juncture, uh, but from a banking perspective, you know, the banks were inundated with things at this stage of, you know, businesses in need of, you know, whether that be simple things as, you know, access to revolvers through to new credit facilities through to, you know, full-on sort of, you know, restructuring. So uh, I think when you look back at it, you know, yeah, yes, you know, since, you know, various different central government governments were providing liquidity into the market, but there was also an element of this that, you know, that just wasn't enough. Um, you, you've made the mention to chapter 11, but that's just a reference to bankruptcy, to this business filing for bankruptcy somewhere in Europe, but you cannot name the place or the country or the jurisdiction where it's filed for bankruptcy. I'm just, I just want to make the clarification for our listeners that yeah, it yeah, was I actually mean, not yeah. happening in the US. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not, it's not, yeah, but it's just a, you know, it's a pre-packed bankruptcy process, um, you know, but it's equivalent to chapter 11. Yes, it's not a, it's not a US-based business, yes. Okay. On the first episode of this mini-series, Nick Holder, who is the CEO of Our Group, which is a French glass manufacturing company that has been on a turnaround situation for almost seven years now, mentioned something that you have highlighted here before several times, which is the importance of the human capital in managing the turnaround. And that is something that sometimes gets overlooked, especially when you are looking at the company from the outside and too obsessed with the numbers. You actually made this point in a previous conversation we've had um, can you please, please elaborate on what you meant and why is this so important and how did you guys deal with it within the context of the situation? Like what you were saying before about how important it is to communicate to the employee base so that they have full understanding of what the plan is going forward and there's no doubt or, or try to alleviate the uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you're investing into the mid-market or lower mid-market, you know, in any investment, even even large cap, you know, really it comes down to you know human capital, and it comes down to you know the the quality of the management team as well as the employee base, um, and certainly you know there's it's incredibly important in these situations 
where you know things there's a significant amount of stress that there's also a consistent clear uh, line of communication so i think that from from that perspective you know it's incredibly important that you know there there's a you know, there's a, there's a plan that is built that is also supported by the management team and that's also communicated within the organization and i think you know when you think about you know any investment uh, generally speaking, and I think you can look at this in the public markets as well. Certainly, when you're looking at large, large corporate turnarounds, you know a lot of investors focus on who's leading the turnaround itself, mm. as who are the who are those individuals, because you know ultimately when you're talking about you know the lower mid market or large cap it, turnaround or not, you know I, I think a lot of this is really dependent upon who are the individuals that are leading it, because ultimately that that's who you're supporting and backing. And, and so, you know, that's really, you know, within the context of, of this, um, you know, that that's really what it is. And I think, you know, when you're thinking about the management team of a, a business of this nature that is, is relatively a small business going through a turnaround, you know, it really comes down to the individuals that are leading that and, and what is their ability to execute given those, those constraints in the market um, and their ability to sort of, you know, navigate that and, and, and deliver some sort of upside uh, or, or, or and or you know developing the business to, to enable it to grow to grow out of this phase you know lots of these businesses when you get into this turnaround phase the question is, is you know it really is how quickly quickly can you get them out of this this turnaround phase and, and certainly access to credit or access to capital is a big part of that so you know we've explored those in this podcast several times before is how do you communicate uncertainty and you have made a point that part of the uh, success with this situation, which is still ongoing, is being able to communicate with your employee base and make them or try to reduce the uncertainty. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, reducing uncertainty is not, not necessarily that easy. You know, I, th I think, you know, what you, what you try to do is build in, you know, a, a significant amount of best practices into the businesses themselves, as well as governance. To ensure that you know there, there's oversight regarding you know how the business operates day to day, and how you know more specifically how how, how the management team are spending time. So what are they thinking about? And I think that that's you know the most critical element of this is to ensure that you you know you are building in a structure within the business that is that is that can sustain or withstand external shocks. Now you can't, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, a war in Ukraine breaking out, you know, things will happen that you obviously cannot, cannot anticipate. It's impossible to anticipate. But the question is, is, you know, how well can you develop an internal structure within the business to be able to uh, overcome those kind of challenges? And that comes down to, again, you know, a lot of this comes down to people because those are the individuals that have to act actually build the structure in place. Um, but also, you know, how do you ensure that the business is not dependent on one or two, two key individuals as well, which is also a different layer of challenge, you know, and I think in small businesses, you know, that that's also another challenge that you need to overcome is how do you, you know, build in enough, you know, best practices or and or technology to ensure that, you know, should a change in management team be required and or occur, you know, how, you know, do you continue to push forward? Uh, with you know, with that ongoing process, because I guess you just mentioned that there's um, a new environment that the world hasn't has not seen for 30 years, 
the private equity model was born in the late 1970s, early 1980s, where there was high inflation, high interest rate environments, and it has always been predicated on leveraging the target companies or using leverage to acquire those target companies in order to use the IRRs, if you want to term it like that. The risk being too much leverage could not might not provide a business with enough time to turn around. Like as the question is, given your current experience, if you believe that if a leaner sort of balance sheet could have helped the company to turn around or sail through the very challenging environment that has had to endure over the last two years. I mean, certainly, if if the balance sheet was not um, was was not levered, certainly it would have provided a lot more opportunities to get capital into the business. If it was less levered, you know, and there still was leverage on the business, I I, I think we would have faced the same issues in some ways, because ultimately, you know, if you have a counterparty that is a a banking institution, you know, they have a certain objective as well, and you as a you know, they will ask the equity holders to to take a certain amount of risk before they take risk certainly in uncertain times. So I think, you know, I, I, I certainly agree with you in the sense that if the business was using, was not levered at all, you would have had additional capital available to you. There's no question about that. But if there's any financing on the business, uh, I don't think in this particular situation, I don't, I don't know if the, I don't think the outcome would have changed because That's again, you're focused, you're in a situation where, you know, the business became over levered because of external factors that significantly impacted the performance of the market, not of the business. Okay. So, so the market became very challenging. You know, therefore, I think anybody in that market, you know, faced similar similar issues in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, if, you know, if you if you have any 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 financial engineering or financial leverage on the business. That is, that is substantial outside of, you know, something that is, you know, 20%, et cetera. You know, I, I think you would have been faced in a, in a very similar situation. That's interesting. Andrew Tremel, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. This was fascinating and best of luck with your investment case. I, ho- I really hope that everything goes well. Perfect, Juan. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs>